0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the third weekend of November 2021. We are just a month away from the winter solstice and with the decreasing daylight and colder temperatures definitely starting to feel like winter and that slowing down time of year. But maybe you're still getting out there and if so, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email sitkanature at gmail.com or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded this past week with Ian Houston of Cornell University. He was in town working on an experiment with sea cucumbers, but we'll go ahead and join the conversation with him talking first about the work that he did over about seven years on sea star wasting disease, and then towards the end of the show, talk about the work that is ongoing with sea cucumbers.
1: I became involved with the project. There was sort of a flurry of emails that came through from citizen scientists and fishers and aquarium managers. They sort of snowballed. There was like one or two saying, "Hey, the starfish look a little weird." And then it was suddenly they're dying on mass, and then it was like everybody was reporting them dying, you know, millions of them were dying. And, uh, you know, I had just completed the first ever survey of um, basically viruses of any of the echinoderms, which are the spiny skin organisms to which sea stars and sea cucumbers belong. And uh, we were sort of well-placed just to jump in and basically just do our pipeline to figure out, can we see something that's different between a healthy and a diseased starfish? And we did that. And so we've been involved for, yeah, seven, seven years. Yeah. So I've been, I've been doing it for, for quite a while. Um, so early in the piece, what we did is we we basically looked at we looked at viruses, we looked at bacteria, we worked with veterinarians to look with the um, what the tissues look like under the microscope, and what became apparent off the bat was that you know there is some consistency between different starfish that have wasting, but mostly there's sort of an absence of things that you can see with a microscope. Uh, and that would be things like bacteria and fungi and other types of algae and other things that, you know, are fairly large. So we sort of instantly thought, well, it must be something smaller than that. So we thought it must be a virus. Um, and so, you know, that's what, that's where I came in. That was my entry point to it. And um, basically, we looked to see what types of viruses there were in healthy specimens and disease specimens. And what we found was that there really wasn't too much of a difference between them with the exception of one virus called the C-STAR-associated virus, that we found was in greater kind of prevalence in the, the libraries that we were preparing. So the, the looking at all the different viruses that are in, um, you know, a particular animal we call a library. And in the disease libraries, there were more of this C-STAR-associated densovirus. And so that sort of made us scratch our heads and think, well, maybe that's you know it related to the disease somehow. So then we went after it in a very, so our initial survey was only about 28 animals. We expanded that to about 650 animals. Uh, most of them were diseased. There was uh, about 500 uh, diseased ones, about 100 healthy ones. And we compared it using another tool called quantitative PCR, which is uh, what they use now to work out uh, SARS-CoV-2 in that little swab that they take up your nose. What we found was actually that, um, you know, this this virus was more prevalent. There was more of it within the population. And also the amount of the virus per animal was higher in the diseased animals compared to the healthy animals. And so that gave us sort of a lot of evidence that maybe it was a virus uh, involved in that. But we sort of needed experimental evidence to figure out, you know, what was going on there. So we went after something called Koch's postulates, which is sort of a, a suite of different things that you have to do to prove that a microbe is causing a disease or is responsible for a disease. The way that we did that is we took viruses out of a diseased sea star. Uh, we filtered them. We prepared them. Uh, everything that was larger than, you know, a bacterium we got rid of, and we are just dealing with stuff that was smaller um, than, you know, a virus, virus and smaller. And we injected it into healthy starfish. And in many cases, we didn't get any response at all. But in two experiments uh, that we ran one after the other, we did actually find that it caused some disease – symptoms. Um, notably that their arms were curling. Uh, they seemed to become deflated. Uh, there was uh, a couple of lesions on them as well. And so you were able to sort of generate this thing that we were calling based on just looking at it, sea star wasting disease, using that, that approach. So we leapt to it and said, well, that must be it. You know, that's, it's a virus that causes it. We published a really high profile paper in 2014 in a very prestigious journal called the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. Yes, we were were fairly confident that that was responsible for it. But what happened after that, uh, and this is kind of the um, the mea culpa, if you will. So in the years after that, we went through and we tried to revisit it. We tried to perform those experiments again. Uh, We were unsuccessful another eight times after that. We also started to dissect the data that we had. One thing going into a system that you know nothing about from a viral perspective, what types of viruses there are is that we didn't realize that there's actually a lot of different types of densovirus within these animals. Uh, We just happened to pick the one which was the most obvious. And so when we tried to sort of separate it out into different different densoviruses, we found that there's no relationship whatsoever
0: (laughs) with this virus. So you'd been pooling them essentially in some of the early work.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, we had done sort of what's called a global assembly of all the data. Uh, we'd also sort of ignored some of the diversity that we saw within this, the sequences that we basically assembled uh, by lining them all up together. We sort of said, well, that, you know, just because it's ATGC in one animal and it's TGAT uh, and another animal in 90 percent of them, we're just going to ignore that other one, you know. And so there was a lot of sort of um, head scratching as to, you know, why we couldn't get the experiments to repeat. And then so we finally come to the conclusion that the virus actually was not related to the disease at all, um, and it was we were misled because it was a really really abundant virus at the time. Uh, it just doesn 't happen to have anything to do with disease at all. The viruses inhabit virtually every animal uh, that you have out there in marine environments and terrestrial environments, and there 's usually a lot of them and a lot of different types of them too and um, so basically yeah we we <laughs> this was one that we happened to pick that seemed to be really you know well associated with the, um, with the disease. But then, you know, when we, we started to pick apart the data and work out individual viruses, um, viral strains, if you will, there really wasn't anything there. Um, so that led to the question, well, what about other viruses? And so we started to look at the other viruses that were present, the other 30 to 40 different viruses and how they changed over time in animals as they went from completely healthy to completely diseased. And what we worked out is that when animals uh, go through the sort of disease process, in, in this case, sea star wasting, Um, they become really, really obvious to our observation. So in other words, um, you know, when when you have a healthy animal and you look at the viruses uh, within them, you don't see many viruses. Uh, You know, you see them as a relatively small sort of pool of the total amount of DNA data that you're dealing with. But then as the animals undergo this sort of disease, sea star wasting, whatever, um, you actually are able to see them a lot easier. And so that causes problems because... Uh, By the simple by that simple fact, you can ascribe pathogenicity. You can say that something's responsible for disease for any number of different viruses, but you'd have to be able to prove it. (laughs) And that's something that we were not able to do. So we sort of discounted the viral hypothesis. And, um, you know, there's still we looked at bacteria. There was nothing very obvious there at all. Uh, We we definitely didn't see any fungi or other types of organisms at all. And so it sort of put us back to square one. So, you know, what is actually causing sea star wasting disease? So it's been – so getting to that point was sort of a six-year process. (laughs) And then we – for the last, you know, couple years of the project, we were working on what actually might be responsible for sea star wasting. And um, initially, we were sort of back to square one. You know, we okay. So the the viral sort of taking the the Koch's postulates demonstration um, that worked once or twice, but it never worked again. And uh, so,
0: so that would be it's it's there when they're diseased, and if you introduce it, then the disease forms exactly. I, yeah, I was curious yeah. when you when you did that. Your control was your control simply just leaving the starfish alone and not giving them anything, or did you inject them with a a, a pure saline or something that
1: yeah, so we we toy around a little bit with our controls for that. In that case, what we were doing is we were taking the viral inoculum. So this um, tissue homogenate. we put uh, tissue in a blender. We filtered out everything that was larger than bacteria, bacteria and larger. And then for the controls, we heat treated it. So basically, we zapped it in a microwave for mm-hmm. a couple minutes. And if you're a virus, you're going to fall <laughs> apart. If you're a cellular organism, you're going to fall apart. And in that case, in the controls, we didn't really see, you know, the same disease manifesting. Which the easy explanation for that, you know, unless you think about it, is um, basically that, you know, it's a living thing which is causing the disease. But it turns out when you boil the tissues of an animal um, or, or heat treat them, you, you generate all kinds of complex organic materials and molecules that are really, really hard to break down by bacteria, all right? And it's not the same sort of stuff as you're adding in addition to viruses with that non-controlled uh, inoculum. So that w- that's been sort of something that we, um, we've been sort of looking at. And, and you know, we now we, we sort of have a greater appreciation for what's causing, w- you know, sea star wasting disease. And we think we can explain what that response was pretty, pretty easily. Um, and that was that, you know, we're adding a huge amount of organic material when we did that. And whereas the heat treated controls is in a form that just isn't really usable by bacteria because it's being totally demolished, uh, mm. aggregated. So, um, so yeah, the, the, the hunt was on for, like, what is actually causing it. And so back to square one, uh, we started to look at environmental data as, as sea star wasting occurred in 2013 and 2014, uh, looking at buoys, oceanographic buoys, available coastal environmental data. And we sort of noticed that there really wasn't, you know, too much correspondence with anything in terms of absolute water temperature. So, in fact, the water seemed to be colder, In the several sort of weeks before sea star wasting actually happened, Um, there also seemed to be a drought happening before that. And basically the only time that wasting in about half of the occurrences, there was sort of this pulse of warm water and then a pulse of cold water and then back to, you know, warm water again. So there's rapid swift uh, shifts in temperature. So we went out in 2018 to go and investigate this. We, we designed complicated experiments with water baths and things to be able to swing the temperature up for 24 hours and then down for 24 hours, thinking that that was totally key to it. And we got animals from the field. This is in Santa Cruz in California. And we, we brought them into the aquarium system to acclimate. And within the acclimation phase, they started to waste away. And, and there was no change in temperature at all during that period. So that sort of really, you know, having designed all this stuff and shipped out lots of equipment like what we did here to Sitka, um, it was a bit of a downer. But it sort of that also was fairly insightful. It seemed that whatever was causing their, you know, this wasting disease was something either coming through in the seawater system into the sea tables, or something they experienced when they were in the field that simply just gets worse when they're when they're in the aquarium system. So we started to um, explore a little bit more thoroughly. A few other things: desiccation. We thought perhaps hot summer days being uh, in the intertidal might cause it. So we took them out the water on a you know day when it was 92 degrees uh, for an hour, some for three hours, and then saw like how you know how they responded as far as whether they developed wasting faster. Um, we also uh, we did we did a few perturbations of them. Uh, we added, I think we did another uh, viral inoculum, sort of similar to what we did before. Um, And then we played around with water flows as well. So fast water versus slow water in aquariums. And uh, the results from that is that basically everything causes wasting. Um, If you put fast water, they waste slower. Uh, Slow water flows increase wasting. Desiccation increase wasting. Um, The addition of organic materials or tissue homogenates induce wasting. And so um, that sort of left us a little bit... You know, up in the air, it's like either nothing causes wasting or everything causes wasting. And it wasn't until we got back to the lab and we took uh, samples of their microbiome, uh, the surface of the animals, which we tracked during wasting progression, uh, so going from completely healthy to diseased, that we saw this increase in uh, bacteria, which can only exist in no oxygen conditions uh, on their surface. And that happened before they wasted or at the time of wasting. Uh, So, most times in the marine environment, there's tons of oxygen out there, right? You know, it's bubbles and waves and, um, you know, oxygen easily gets into water, diffuses into water. But under conditions where you get sort of low flow or large amounts of bacterial activity or, uh, you know, deeper waters that have not been ventilated in a long time, they can come up to surface waters. Then you can get anoxic conditions. And that's where you would expect to see these anaerobic bacteria. The fact that we found them on the surfaces of sea stars, which are obviously they have to breathe, and so they're usually in anoxic waters, suggested that something was growing on their surface uh, that would otherwise generate an, an anoxic environment within a few millimeters of their surface. So that led us to sort of test the hypothesis that it was actually microorganisms right in the very, uh, you know, interface between the animal and seawater that were causing this wasting condition. And so the following year, we went out to Bodega Bay Marine Lab in California, and we took sea stars, we put them into flow-through aquariums, uh, we added a whole bunch of different types of sugars and organic matter, and also uh, we took phytoplankton and uh, particulate matter from, from coastal seawater, and we added it to the, the sea stars and then looked to see you know, whether they waste or not. And, and the short answer is that, yes, all of those do cause wasting over and above the controls uh, much faster. And so we started to look at the bacteria. Again, we saw this sort of uh, change in the community structure that went from completely aerobic bacteria to anaerobic bacteria. And so that sort of provided us evidence that, you know, organic matter does, which organic matter is things like sugars and proteins and, you know, carbohydrates. And, um, and that's what bacteria thrive on, right? They, they use it up. And in doing so, they consume oxygen, and by if you have enough of that activity happening, it generates this little anoxic boundary layer on the surfaces of, of sea stars. Um, so we sort of said, well, okay, that's actually a viable mechanism uh, that might be explained by all of the patterns of sea star wasting emergence all up and down the coast. Everything from the pulse of cold water that occurred in the middle of summer that's upwelling to... Um, through to the reverse pattern of um, association with temperature. So in some places, it was high temperature. Some places, it was very low temperature, like in Oregon. That's upwelling as well. That's upwelling brings nutrients and fuels phytoplankton. The phytoplankton spit out a lot of carbohydrates, and that's what fuels bacterial activity. So um, so we sort of look back as well. We were sort of questioning, you know, was anaerobic condi- were anaerobic conditions around in 2013 2014? We don't have a time machine, so we can't go back and actually measure it in the field. So we turn to something called stable isotopic ratios, which is looking at um, every element on Earth has at least, you know, one isotope, if not two, or three, or four, or five. Uh, but nitrogen has two. So there's 15N and there's 14N. Uh, 15N is something that is not used by microorganisms. And as a consequence, uh, it becomes enriched when there's lots and lots of microbial activity. Right? Uh, That's why if you go to sewage, for example, it's like lots and lots of 15N, uh, but not a lot of 14N, because 14N is all being used by microbes uh, in its degradation. So we looked at the tissues of healthy and diseased animals, and we found that there was, sure enough, an enrichment of 15N in the tissues of the diseased animals, which suggests that, you know, back then in 2013, there was actually some sort of hypoxia happening as well. And then the other thing that we were thinking about is, well, why were some animals, you know, more affected than others? We know that some species were really heavily affected. Um, The sunflower stars, for example, they're, they're almost extinct down in the Salish Sea. Um, And so we're thinking about this in context of, like, this idea that you get this anoxic boundary layer around, you know, animals. And we started to realize that the animals that were heavily affected were the ones that were really plumose, Like, they had a lot of corrugatedness on their surface. They were ones that had lots of spines and, and gills and fluffy things out the top, whereas those which were relatively flat were not affected at all. And so we, you know, looked at that. So basically, we we came out here in 2019, collected a few different species of sea stars uh, from Sitka, uh, whole specimens, uh, intact specimens. We took them back to Ithaca. We also got some from Bodega Bay and from Santa Cruz, California. And we put them through a computer tomography, a CT scanner, right? What you get done at the hospital if you, you know, have an injury or something. And that allowed us to calculate the relative uh, rugosity on a really, really fine scale between different species of sea stars. And so when we compared those sea stars that were heavily affected with those that were not affected or less affected, it fell out exactly as we were expecting. Um, The sea stars that were really, really fluffy were definitely significantly more affected by wasting than those which were flat, which holds true. So if you think about like things that that are corrugated, they have this sort of much thicker layer of water over their surface than something which is relatively flat. Um, It's kind of like if you go into a forest, uh, the air does not move as fast as if you're out on the lawn uh, the front of your house or whatever, all right? Um, It's just there's less sort of resistance to movement uh, on your lawn compared to the forest. So the same idea with the surface of starfish. So we wound all this up together. We also have a couple of other lines of evidence, um, like how fast they breathe and um, also, you know, other evidence looking at the types of bacteria that are there. Uh, and we wrapped it all up. And, and so what sea star wasting appears to be is basically the generation of anoxic boundary layers on these, the surfaces of these animals, which these animals have to breathe through their upper surface and through their tube feet on the bottom. And if you have a lower oxygen layer around them, it actually causes them to suffocate. And that low oxygen layer is caused by bacteria, and those bacteria are eating sugars, all right? They're eating stuff, and the main source of those sugars is coming from phytoplankton blooms. And uh, phytoplankton, obviously, it doesn't have to be like pea soup green out there. It can just be like mildly Kool-Aid, like a weak Kool-Aid color, but um, just that little bump up in productivity can actually cause uh, this effect. There's also another element there that we're not talking about, which is temperature. All right. Um, temperature, when seawater warms up, it can, bear, it can actually hold less oxygen, right? Um, if you boil water, it, it, you know, the oxygen goes away. And so, you know, when you combine this sort of idea of higher organic matter load as well as higher temperature, it really just gets worse and worse for, for starfish. And just getting back to those experiments that we did back in 2014, why did we see you know a response to this one enrichment experiment? It's when you grind up tissue of an animal, you generate huge quantities of organic matter that bacteria love to live on. Okay, and so when we added them to this one experiment with those sea stars, they basically could have had you know that same effect happening. You know, the organic material that you're introducing could have stimulated the bacteria and generated. You know, low oxygen conditions right at their surface, and um, so yeah, it's it's been a long and circuitous round <laughs> to get to that. It was like it took a long time, a lot of people uh, to figure that out, and a lot of um, unusual ways to think about things. I would say um, it's not your it's it's definitely a new idea, um, at least for echinoderms. Something similar has been seen in corals in the tropical environments. It's called the um the DDAM model which i think is uh oh gosh a dom <laughs> oh gosh dissolved organic matter something algae and microorganisms or something but it's the same idea you have this enrichment of uh organic carbon from macroalgae on coral reefs that stimulates bacteria at the surfaces of corals causes an anoxic layer on their surface which causes the animals to die all right so that's, that's the same idea and uh but it's definitely for the for the sea stars uh particularly in areas like you know Temperate zones, like here up here in Sitka, it's it's totally new. So long, long journey. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it seems like yeah, a lot of a lot of sort of. Well, it's just challenging because, as you were mentioning the the viruses, I suppose it's you know I think about uh, in humans the HIV. It took them a long time to figure it out because it was all the other diseases that came in as a result of the infection, and and I could imagine that when uh, organism is compromised uh, its immune system isn't functioning. And so that allows the proliferation of things that otherwise would just be there in the background, sort of not, not, um, not bad, uh, not doing mm-hmm. any harm, uh, mm-hmm. sort of way. And so, uh, you know, that in that sense, they're correlated rather than causal, um, or, or the causation's the worst, uh, the reverse that actually the, the viruses are showing up because they're having problems, not, totally. not the other way around. Totally. Um, totally.
1: And, and I'm glad that you mentioned that because, um, You know, one of the things with uh, HIV infection and and clinical acquired immune deficiency syndrome, it wasn't until they came up with a case index for that where they looked at uh, all of the blood sort of chemistry, they looked at uh, what was actually happening there, that they were able to point to a single um, parameter in the human body which predicted whether somebody was going to have acquired immune deficiency syndrome, and that is the CD4 count. And they noticed that the immune system collapsed, and so it wasn't the Carposi sarcoma, it wasn't, you know, any of the other. Many many opportunistic infections that people were getting. It was actually the root cause of it was that the immune system was disappearing, and then it was a gosh four years until they were able to isolate uh, a virus. Uh, at, well, four years after the first sort of outbreak happened in the United States, that they knew about. There was actually one that happened a lot earlier than that, but um, and it, it took a long time to work out the causal agent, which we now know is, is human immunodeficiency virus. So the the same thing with sea stars. Um, part of the difficulty early in the piece when we started to work on them was that when you look at a sea star, uh, they either look healthy, totally normal, or they look like something else as, you know, they're unhealthy, right? And the problem is, is that everything that looked unhealthy was suddenly ascribed to sea star wasting disease. Um, And there was no case definition for it. Uh, It was all based on gross observations. Did it look normal or did it look abnormal? And, what we sort of decided after uh, whoa, about four years was that we really needed a case definition. We needed to have something, some defining characteristic that you could point to and say definitively that this was wasting. And it wasn't until this year that we actually published that for one of the species, for Pisaster ochraceus, and in that case, it was the uh, presence of an unusual uh, type of immune cell within the uh, the sea star, which seemed to be a characteristic. Uh, marker, if you will, of wasting uh, at, that we observed in an aquarium system, um, but whether that translates to the whole host the millions of other sea stars that people have been recording as, as wasting or not we'll, we'll never know you know does it look abnormal yeah it 's abnormal, but it could just be a peck from a bird, it could be that it got stuck in a tide pool with unfavorable water conditions, it could be any number of things right and um, I, <laughs> I got into an argument with with colleagues because they're saying, well, that wasting is different from that wasting. Um, it, it, no, no, no. The wasting that you're seeing in your aquarium systems is different from the wasting that we're seeing in the field. And I asked them, well, why? How? W- what's the criteria for that? And they said, well, it just is. <laughs> you know, but having a sort of defined characteristic for a disease is vital uh, to be able to um, work out what's causing
0: it. You know? Yeah, I suppose otherwise you end up, you know... Um essentially looking at different things under the guise of the same thing and and mm-hmm. getting contradictory results that, that aren't so helpful. <laughs> totally. And,
1: and, you know, trying to find a unifying sort of thing that would be causing it or, or maybe a, a small number of variables that might be causing a disease uh, if it's not a pathogen. Um, if you've got multiple different conditions happening at the same time and your sole characteristic is that they're abnormal or normal, uh, it makes it your, and each one of those conditions is caused by something different, you're never going to find it. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. It's it's it, we we gave it the name sea star wasting disease. Um, I actually these days for about three or four years have been calling it just sea star wasting. Yeah. Because it's just an abnormal.
0: <laughs> well, sea it's star. it's interesting. I mean, how fast some of them just fall apart, and others seem to hold up a little better. And I guess I've heard of some people, you know, noting somewhere where like an arm or two was shed, but then the animal seems to recover and. And you know, I guess again, there could be could be other things going on, i suppose in in practice in each of those individual cases. but uh, it is interesting to me that you know and when you were speaking you you, you alluded to here, and I, I heard you speak a little more directly to it yesterday, but the um that some of these animals are living pretty close to the envelope in terms of oxygen into their into their system it's actually diffusing into their system i don't know if it can diffuse in from from the air or if it's only when they're in the water but um that that <clears throat> they relatively easily go into this anoxic hypoxia that 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 they can't afford to not have and what i was kind of curious about is is and uh, you know this may go beyond what anything you've looked at but just thinking generally it seems that you know, obviously, there's this balance between investing so much that, like, like, there's a cost to investing in in having some headroom. On the other hand, if you don't have headroom, then you're not very resilient, and and changes in conditions can really, you know, put the hurt on you. And so, you know, with that in mind, I'm, I, it just seems interesting to me that these would be living so close to the margin, so mm-hmm. to speak, that that a relatively small perturbation now part of what made this. Remarkable was that it happened up and down the coast, and maybe it happens all the time in small little pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, the same question for me is like, wouldn't, wouldn't there be a, a long term benefit over over big climate cycles and stuff? Over over, I mean, yes, we we have the the global warming now, but there's been mm-hmm. climate cycles and in, in localized, you know, hot dry periods or whatever. Mm-hmm that sort of lack of resiliency would have been problematic somewhere along the way. But I, but I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the question that just comes to mind around around well, some of this. No,
1: for sure. I mean, I think that there's, like I, we found basically that, you know, Pisaster, the, the ochre star, is really kind of uh, using as much oxygen as it can actually theoretically diffuse across its surface, which is kind of an amazing thing. There's also this thing of selection that goes on, genetic selection. Diseases or conditions like this uh, have a tendency to select for en masse, you know, a particular phenotype, a particular type or behavior or structure. And uh, so it could just be that this will then lead to a more a population that might have a little bit more headspace. Echinoderms in general are referred to in, in the scientific literature as boom-bust violet they boom. They have these huge population increases and then they disappear or they, they die off or get eaten or, or whatever, and then they come back again in a big sort of boom a few years later. And, um, you know, that I think lends itself to having these very large changes in, um, you know, uh, characteristics that make them, you know, more resistant to environmental conditions. Um, so currently what's happening is that people are looking at the um, – the population genetics of surviving populations, the ones that have come back since this big disease took over. Um, And mostly they're not finding too much. To be honest, there's not a lot of difference between them. But they are, <laughs> the things that they are able to find from a genetic standpoint, they can't identify what they are because they're, most of the genomes of organisms are not, you know, we don't know what it does. But we know that it's there and it's being, you know, switched on in the surviving populations. We don't actually know what it is doing for them. And that t- actually, that process takes a long time too. But um, there's, you know, the other thing that we're looking at is to see whether before this event, um, whether there were morphologies of, of sea stars that were different to what's happening now. You know, has it resulted in flatter starfish? Is it, um, you know, are they, for example, do they have a greater surface area to volume uh, now compared to they back then? And that would be just selection on the population. Um, so it's, it's, you know, interesting. It will be interesting to see what happens with them. And, and yeah, they will, they'll come back. Yeah, you know, I don't think they're gone. Nothing, you know, I think in certain spots, particularly in the you know down south and and the Salish Sea, uh, you've seen a dramatic enough decline in population and takeover of you know the ecological niche, if you will, by the leather stars. So they're not going to be back for a long time, you know, if at all. But they're never going away entirely. And I do have to, you know, there efforts underway to try and breed them in captivity to reseed populations in key areas that are missing starfish I think altogether um and hopefully you know those are successful in bringing back a breeding population but yeah I think y- y- <laughs> all you have to do is look out so working here at the UAS uh, off the uh, the boat ramp look down in the water and you'll see a million dermasterius leather stars Pretty sure they haven't been the dominant sea star in that area uh, for a long time. I think those are ones that came about since the sea star wasting took over. And Dermasterius is a one of the organisms that is not affected. It's a very very smooth starfish, so it seems to have taken over as the dominant sea star uh, in much of the Pacific Coast now.
0: <laughs> hmm. Well, it's interesting as I've dug into older data when it's available, which of course is a very hit and miss thing, like with weather and stuff, and and reflected on living here in Sitka where I grew up and so my own perspectives of what normal is hmm. and and then seeing talking to people that have been around for much longer than I have and looking at data and I have come to realize that our sense of normal is set in a very limited window that doesn't really capture the sort of natural variation of things. We're not really good at sort of intuitively understanding variation on scale by default it doesn't seem like mm-hmm. I think you know if you work with it I was speaking with somebody uh, Brian Buma, earlier this year and he was look he, he looks at things that happen on hundred year timescales mm-hmm. and so that's much different I mean that's a whole human lifetime so mm-hmm. so but because he's in that data all the time he's, he's noticed his sense of scale has shifted mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and you know accordingly maybe his sense of risk about some things like because he's seeing them happening all the time but you know that might be every couple of human lifetimes so for most of us that's hardly ever (laughs) but in the scale of thousands of years and so with something like sea star wasting i'm like is this a 100 or 150 year event or a 200 year event that actually is fairly normal so to speak in the broad scope of a of a species lifespan, uh, but but we're just seeing it and being like, "Holy cow, this is crazy." That, that's uh, a, that's a
1: great point. Um, so when we went into this, we thought that it was a brand new phenomenon. Um, there had been a paper before by uh, Chris Harley at UBC and Amanda Bates, um, also at UBC, uh, looking at sea star wasting in Pisaster crassus on Vancouver Island. It seemed like it was a much smaller uh, disease event that had occurred, and um, you know we sort of did a scan of the literature and it seemed like it might be the same thing, but we weren't too sure But it seemed to be on a much grander scale. And uh, we looked back at where else it had happened. There was a, a paper that came out from a research group uh, in the Channel Islands that got published in the proceedings of the symposium of the Channel Islands back in 1997, which gives a beautiful description of sea star wasting uh, down in Southern California. So it had been these little pockets of it. Um, and then looking back in time, you know, we were curious, like, have there been mass die-offs of starfish recorded before? So we scanned the literature, um, and there's lots and lots of reports of starfish on the East Coast. Uh, they were considered pests for the oyster fishery over there, and they even had ways of getting rid of them by putting a bunch of lime in the water <laughs> and trying to dissolve them. And, um, but we did come across some interesting uh, reports. So there was a paper in 1972 that had a beautiful photograph of sea star wasting in Europe, uh, exactly the same. Uh, There was a paper from Australia in 1999, I want to say, from Tasmania, that reported the same kind of disease-ish event. And then um, the the late John Pierce, Professor John Pierce from University of California, Santa Cruz, he died, I think, last year, Um, he was amazing at pulling scientific literature from the 1800s. Just unbelievable. He found a report buried in the Report of the Fisheries Association of New Hampshire, which basically was an 100% 100% accurate description of sea star wasting disease. It was literally the animals lose turgor, uh, their limbs curl, uh, lesions form on their surface, their guts hang out, and they eventually dissolve it. 100% identical. And so it looks as though sea star wasting has at least been recorded in you know some form or another for at least 120-something years. And uh, that means that it's, you know, yeah, it's been around. It's, it's just little pockets of it, and it just happened to be a really, really broad-scale really obvious event that happened in, you know, 2013, 2014. And I think part of that is that people were alerted to it based on the earlier reports in Olympic National Park, and they were just looking in the water, essentially waiting for, for something to mm. happen. Um, and and thankfully, um, and I've got to give a huge shout out for uh, citizen scientists involved with this, you know, we scientists were not out in the field looking for this at all, um, or not not as much as we'd like to. And citizen scientists really carried it through and made lots and lots of reports of sea star waste, things like iNaturalist and other um, uh, marine rocky intertidal network, um, and really sort of gave us this view that, yeah, it's happening everywhere. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a pretty astonishing effort from, from the citizen scientists, which, of course, we very much appreciate.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting just to consider the impact of, of that, relatively speaking, you know, the people know about stuff now i mean in the communication and so so that on the one hand that that's good on the other hand it might be misleading relative to what's been going on in the past in that we're like oh, we've never seen this before except for that's because nobody could ever talk like this so so it, you you get the pockets here and there and and it's just hard to know which case it could be something that's unprecedented in sort of scale and and scope But it could also be something that it's unprecedented in scale and scope of communication about it happening. And otherwise, you know how many times how many times that that I see something and just go, well, that must be normal because there's any (laughs) number of things that I don't usually see and don't really think about it. And then I hear somebody else talking about it and I'm like, oh no, I actually did see some of that. And and Mm -hmm. so then these this opportunity for us to share share what we 've been noticing there 's so many eyes out there mm-hmm. that are now able to be networked together in ways that uh, weren 't really feasible in the past, so totally. uh, sort of I guess uh, taking that into account it, it's i mean it 's just another another variable in the mix i guess of of like what 's going on here and what is it. You know what's happening, and what is it telling us? You know, and and how do we put this in in context mm-hmm. of of the ecology, and and you know, be appropriately concerned, uh, and and see what we can do about it. Is is uh, you know, because if it's relatively normal in the in the ecology, then mm-hmm. that's not something that we necessarily need to do anything about, except for except for monitor. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's always always hard, hard to tell. But so. As I mentioned at the beginning, you're you're here for uh, sea cucumbers, which which as I if I'm remembering correctly, you you um, got some reports of some something going on with them in a fishery in in Southeast Alaska and. And uh, I guess you're the on-call on-call person, on-call <laughs> virologist for uh, marine echinoderms, especially at this point. <laughs> World's only echinoderm virologist? No, yeah. that's
1: not true. There's there's actually a lot of uh, people investigating viruses of sea cucumbers and uh, sea urchins and all that, particularly with reference to aquaculture in places like uh, China, mainland China. But we certainly were sort of well placed for it because it happened. So this happened in about 2016, um, 2015, 2016. Uh, down in Ketchikan, there was a, a report that uh, some of the sea cucumbers that divers were pulling up were, after they were punching them, were turning basically to mucus. <laughs> you know, they were really uh, in a bad way. And so because sea star wasting was ongoing at the time in the region, there were some questions as to whether it was the same thing. And so we became involved simply to have a look. Um, we we didn't really, you know, we were already really heavily it's way too busy working on sea stars. But what we did is we took uh, some of the diseased uh, sea cucumbers and the healthy sea cucumbers, and we did sort of our, our traditional prepare viral metagenomes and see what's different about them. And the short answer is that um, there really wasn't too much different <laughs> at all. Once again, it was that same story where if you look at the to- you know the total diversity of viruses uh, in a healthy and diseased animal, they're going to be virtually the same. And there really wasn't any sort of differential representation either of them. But we did observe something really unusual, uh, and that's something called a flavivirus. Uh, and now most viruses that we come across in marine environments are all You know, uh, they're all what we call single-stranded RNA, uh, non-enveloped viruses. So certain types of viruses have envelopes, which are these lipid outer layers. We're most familiar with SARS-CoV-2 that has an envelope with spike proteins on the outside. But most of the ones that we come across in marine environments lack that envelope entirely. They're uh, simpler, if you want to put it that way. But we've never come across a flavivirus before. And flaviviruses are a particularly interesting group because they are related to things like dengue virus and Zika virus. Distantly related, I should say. And so it's great knowing that there was a virus back then. What do we what do we do about it? Like what, <laughs> it obviously was not associated with the disease. and I want to emphasize two things first, This flavivirus does not mean that you can't eat it, (laughs) and also that it's not going to cause the animal to die. Most of the viruses that we see are just naturally there, and they're uh, not pathogenic at all. So there's no reason to be alarmed about that. But it did provide us with a great opportunity to test this, um, this boundary layer hypothesis with a single virus that we know is there. It's not a diverse virus. There's not like 50 different types of flavivirus. It is one virus. And so what we're trying to do is try and understand how environmental productivity, perturbation, organic matter availability, how that actually influences the rate at which this virus replicates and the rate at which it basically or or the prevalence of it within a population. And so uh, we've been out here. We we came here because it's a really fantastic opportunity institution to do work. There's great access to seawater, which is just down on the, um, the, the boat ramp. Um, it's got a great lab facility as well. The collaborator, Joel Marcus, is here as well. And um, just, just, you know, everything fits. One of the biggest advantages is that uh, you have a FedEx depot uh, at the airport, which isn't that far away, which makes it easy to uh, ship stuff in and out for us. Um, and so what we've done is we've um, collected um, – w- about 42 of these animals. We've put them into aquariums, these outdoor ponds, these kiddie pools, as we introduced at the beginning of the program. And we've added sort of various different substrates to them, different uh, sugars, for example. So we're glucose. Most people are familiar with that. It's like uh, related to sucrose, what you put in your coffee. Um, we added something called glucosamine, which is, you can get it at the health supplement aisle. Um, it's actually the major component of uh, bacterial cell walls. And it's actually one of the things that uh, is the most dominant type of organic matter in the ocean. Um, we also are adding some other sugars, which are f- basically from uh, fucus, from the, um, the, one of the brown alga, which occur around here. And then we also are bubbling nitrogen through one of them, uh, which basically causes the oxygen levels to d- go down to virtually nothing. Um, and what we're looking at with these sea cucumbers is how they respond. Uh, do they look healthy? Do they have lesions on them? Uh, we're also taking samples of their microbiome. Uh, so we're going to work out whether these treatments alter the types of bacteria that occur on their surface and their abundance as well. Uh, and then we're also taking samples to look for this virus and see you know, how basically it changes with these different amendments and whether it becomes more pronounced or re- starts to replicate faster. Um, and so this is kind of the first in a series of experiments we're hoping to do out here. We'll be back next year, hopefully to do a more natural, uh, amendment experiment where we actually take phytoplankton from the area and we make it bloom in little aquariums. And then we add that to the sea cucumbers and see how things respond. But, um, so far we've made some interesting observations. <laughs> I had no idea, no idea at all that sea cucumbers totally change shape when you put them in hypoxic conditions. Mm-hmm. They go from a football to a sausage, <laughs> and uh, I don't know that that's well recorded in the literature to be honest. Mm. So yeah, fascinating that, yeah. stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess they can they can contract and, and mm. elongate pretty pretty easily. I don't know what they're normally like. I guess, and I mm. mean when I see them, they're usually elongated in the in the water. Yeah, uh, you know, I just happened to see them down by the beach, and I don't know if that's. Uh, I mean, I guess, or sort of technically, in our title, shallow shallow water. On a low tide is when I usually see them, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. usually, yeah, usually spread out and moving around rather than uh, cr- uh, uh, not really curled Bumped up, together. but uh, yeah, <laughs> clen- clenched up a little bit in that in that kind of ball shape, mm-hmm. so um, the viruses are they you know you mentioned you 're sampling the microbiome, and I guess i 'm used to thinking about microbiome from a human context, which is like my guts and and then I then also my skin. I hear about it on on mm-hmm. my surface, and so those are sort of the two. To but then I guess probably I, so, so so the other uh, thing that I don't really know about is is like is there a microbiome within the the flesh the tissue of these animals or is it in their intestinal tracts or I mean like where is it that you're looking at the microbiome in these these animals
1: it's so. everywhere um, so yes uh, so one of the key ones that we're looking at is the outer epidermis so their skin um, there's also the intestine as well so the intestine's is an interesting one because it's usually a mixture of bacteria that kind of live there permanently and also stuff that they're eating that mm. passages through. So disentangling, that can be quite hard for an animal that consumes basically mud and filters out little algal particles. So 99% of what you're going to see is just their food. Um, but there's definitely there's microorganisms that actually live firmly buried within their tissues as well. Mm. Um, in fact, a series of studies in the 1980s and early 90s, I believe, uh, looked at these what's known as subcuticular bacteria, and they occur in sea stars as well. There's also in some in sea urchins. And um, looking by microscopy, um, they found these spiral-shaped bacteria, which are really abundant underneath their, the very outer layer of skin. And those spiral-shaped bacteria, spirochetes, and we probably are most familiar with the spirochete uh, leptospira, which is Lyme's disease. Uh, that's not to say that they have Lyme disease, <laughs> right? But uh, they're, they're in the same sort of family and from a physiological standpoint, those bacteria are mostly what are known as microaerophilic. They exist in really, really low oxygen conditions, not altogether hypoxic or anoxic conditions, but they need lower oxygen conditions to survive. And so um, the reason that they're there is that underneath the surface of the animals is mostly depleted of oxygen because the animal's using it up. Um, So, yeah, they they have microbes living in them. Um, The one place that they don't have a lot of microbes is within their, um, basically, between the organs and the outer skin. It's called the salamic cavity. Um, We've done many, many studies to sort of count the bacteria that live in there, and there's there's none. They're virtually sterile. And the reason for that is that these animals have a really efficient set of cells, which they send out in response to any foreign object within their, this sort of vessel, this uh, salamic fluid. And they munched them up, and, and it's gone. And it's quite remarkable because um, more recently we were working with a scientist, um, M. Lim, down in uh, Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. And M. recorded a, um, uh, a big disease event that occurred on Vancouver Island. And we had a, there was a histopathologist who worked with them. And basically the histopathologist reported that even though there was sort of big open gaps in the outer uh, body of these animals... And so you think that seawater would just flow in with the million of bacteria per milliliter of, of seawater. Uh, couldn't find any <laughs> <laughs> at all, even though it was a relatively open salamic cavity. So they're really, really efficient at, at fending off any sort of bacterial infection. Um, Interesting, Which is fascinating. But everywhere else in the animal totally has them. In fact, in sea stars, we've pulled out a really unusual group of bacteria that live in their uh, gonads predominantly. Oh. Things called mycoplasmas. Um, and we don't typically see those anywhere, but what they're doing, not sure. Again, there's some scientists down at UBC who are working on that. Um, and hopefully they'll be able to cultivate them and tell us more what they're actually doing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, it's, you know, in, when I was younger, I would always hear of bacteria and viruses in sort of strictly pathogenic term, pathogenic terms, uh, you know, maybe with the exception of cheese or, or, you (laughs) know, fermented food kind of things. (laughs) Um, and, but in more recent years, you know, I, I guess there's become a much more nuanced understanding of the role that bacteria and other microorganisms play in the broader environment, but as well as our sort of internal environment and, and how complex that can be and how important to maintaining health in, Mm -hmm. in humans, you know, our gut intestinal flora, so so to speak. And that having that be misadjusted for whatever, like taking antibiotics can, can affect that. And then suddenly you have all sorts of you know, digestion issues or something. So, so there's a little more nuance in that, in that actually maybe even most bacteria don't cause any path, you know, for us certainly aren't pathogenic at all. And, and I guess I don't know. I mean, I kind of asked you this a little bit yesterday, but that, that viruses, you know, I, we hear about the ones that causes harm pretty much mm-hmm. and not really about any others. So broadly speaking, you know, what's your sense of, of sort of like the, 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 viruses in the world, and, and how, how few of them are? is it, in fact, that we are sort of paying attention to because they're harmful, and the rest are just sort of part of the soup, so to speak?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Like, um, we've done viral metagenomics, so this is basically looking at all the different types of viruses um, associated with a huge range of organisms in the marine environment, including lots and lots of arthropods, shrimp, and uh, cladocerans in freshwater ecosystems, copepods, uh, you name it. And, and look, we discover sometimes, it's usually about tens, tens of different viruses uh, that infect an individual in totally normal, you know, they're not diseased at all. And um, there's one particular group of viruses called the RNA viruses, which are single-stranded RNA viruses, uh, not unlike coronaviruses, um, that they're just everywhere. I mean, like, there's, and, and there's a huge diversity of them, too, in totally normal, you know, specimens. So my sense is that, Particularly with the picorna viruses, but also with most viruses, they are mostly totally asymptomatic. They are mostly, you know, uh, maybe sort of just parasites. Obviously, they're all parasites; they need a, a host to replicate. Uh, but they have mechanisms of doing so that are not causing a great burden to their host or, or disease signs, uh, as pathogens would be. And uh, I, I, my sense is that most of them are totally just. You know, just passive passengers along the way, just trying to make a living, you know. Um and, and doing so without harming their host. Uh so you can think about them more as symbionts, you know, mm. beneficial symbionts or commensals is the technical term for them, than actually being uh, you know, pathogenic or parasitic. Yeah. Um, and but the one or two that come along that are that are pathogenic do tend to cause a huge problem, you yeah. know, as we as we now know as a human population, you know. Um and I think you know, it's it, those are the rare ones. Those are the rare ones. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting conundrum.
0: <laughs> uh, well, I suppose they're playing role in because cause it's not just our cells that we have in in us. You know, mm-hmm. the, all the bacteria and other other things there. I guess I guess there are uh, viruses. I mean, I suppose that's a whole ecosystem in itself, in a way that viruses are presumably having some role in mm-hmm. as well. Totally. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's yeah, it is it's sort of yeah such a different world, I guess than the one that I live in. I mean, like I probably wouldn't be here without it, <laughs> but uh yeah. but it's 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 interesting to try and sort of wrap my mind around what exactly well and what general I won't even say what exactly, but sort of mm-hmm. what vaguely is is going on and and kind of a sense of wow, all this stuff, and then in the soil and then in the ocean, oh yeah uh you know the abundance well, and that's I guess a question I have about. Viruses is and, – and I'm sure it depends on the virus that, you know, some viruses you can pick up from surfaces and are still infectious uh-huh. and other ones are breaking down. And so, like in the ocean, how long does a, a virus that isn't in a cell, like how mm-hmm. long is it viable? Um, can That's some of lot. them last a long time and, and mm-hmm. some of them, you know, got to get there right away or –
1: Well, I mean, that's totally right. In order to cause an infection, you need to move from uh, an infected host, right? And you need to make it through to an uninfected host without decaying. And decay is very rapid in seawater. It mostly occurs from, like, you know, uh, enzymes that are spat out by bacteria and other microorganisms, uh, attachment to surfaces that you're not intending to infect, um, like non-target cells or uh, a host that isn't what you're going after, and um, that process is all diffusion, basically. There's no active movement of viruses at all. They have to move from, you know, using electrostatic charge or, no, just by passive diffusion. Um, and so, you know, decay actually happens really fast. So if we look at viral, viruses that infect bacteria bacteriophage, um, we know that the decay rate of those is roughly, you know, 1% to 5% per hour. Mm. And so what that means is usually within a day, day and a half, all the viruses replace themselves in the ocean. Um, for animals, though, uh, it's been remarkably not measured that often. Uh, we know about fish viruses because they're aquacultured and they can track them in, in pens. And we know that their decay rates are actually pretty rapid as well, if not more rapid than bacteriophage. So we're talking like um, several percent per hour, you know, uh, so they're gone within a few hours. Um, and this is a big question that we had with uh, SARS-CoV-2 is like, you know, is it a risk for people to be at the beach breathing on the water? Or perhaps, you know, sewage influence because it's present in sewage uh, to, to beach goers. And if you look at all the RNA viruses that we work on, they all decay really quickly. And that's the physical particle decay. So the particles are gone. Uh, but particles can also become damaged and become non-infective. And that usually happens faster than the physical, <laughs> well, mm-hmm. it has to happen faster than the physical um, decay. And so, you know, there, there really isn't much concern uh, yeah. of that at all. Um, and I think, you know, when we talk about animal viruses like cucumber viruses, for example, I wouldn't expect them to last more than a day, maybe a few hours if you're lucky, maybe only a few minutes, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're short half-life in, in the wild.
0: Wow. And so it's kind of astounding because, because if I remember correctly, there's an, a whole awful lot of viruses in the ocean. And if they're replacing themselves every, every couple of days, you said, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, I mean, viruses are so small, but there's so many of them. I guess it still adds up to a lot of biomass. It's kind of oh, cycling yeah. through the viruses. Yep. Uh,
1: if, you, if you add up all of the uh, carbon associated with all of the viruses which are in the ocean, there's about 10 million virus particles for every milliliter of seawater. Uh, remember that next time you accidentally ingest water when you're swimming. Um, <laughs> don't worry, they're, they're not going to harm you. Um, but if you add up all that carbon, you're talking about 30 million blue whales
0: Wow, on the planet. That's a lot. And so that's, that's ba- basically that, that level of, of carbon is being cycled through living and dying, so yeah. to speak, viruses every, every day or two. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's this phenomenon called the viral shunt, which occurs. Mm-hmm. So
1: most of the viruses in the ocean affect bacteria and other smaller organisms. Um, microorganisms, sorry, that are floating around in in, uh, the plankton. And when you do the mass balance, sorry, not the mass balance, you do the calculation as to how much carbon they're liberating on a daily basis of all of the carbon in the ocean, it's about 12.5% are liberated by viruses. And that goes back into organic carbon, and that gets taken up by bacteria again. They get killed by viruses. That gets released back into organic carbon. And so it's this constant cycling through viral activity, through killing of their hosts, uh, that basically allows productivity to happen in the ocean. Wow. So viruses are totally key to the ocean function. Hmm. You know, uh, we tend to think of them as very negative things, but actually they're, they're totally natural um, and they're really, really important.
0: Wow. Well, yeah, as we wrap up here, I I know that you are interested in, you know, continuing the work on sea cucumbers. Is there anything that local folks here could do to help out with that?
1: Absolutely. So we've been, we would love to partner with um, fishers in the region, cucumber divers, uh, citizen science groups, uh, school uh, groups, um, whoever. Um, But basically what we're trying to do is we are developing a field deployable kit for basically detecting this one sea cucumber virus. So what it'll involve is basically taking a small piece of the animal, probably a tube foot, you know, a little extensions on the bottom of the animal, uh, sticking it in a tube and then basically put it into another tube, wait it in an hour, and then it should tell you by a ch- color change whether there's the virus there. So we'd like to get a handle on how this virus changes over a season. Um, so if people are routinely kind of looking out for sea cucumbers or maybe just during the fishing season, um, that's something that we you know, would love to partner <laughs> with You know, groups with. Um, So if there's anybody who'd like to get in touch, please contact me. Uh, My email is Houston, H E W S O N at Cornell, C O R N E L L dot E D U. And, you know, the other aspect of it is we're also trying to get a handle on the environment, particularly around sea cucumber uh, dive sites. And we have the opportunity to partner with fishers to send out instrument packages, which is really just a simple little, um, you know, equip- piece of equipment that you send, you lower it on a rope, and then you bring it back up again. And that will allow us to profile uh, things like temperature and salinity and oxygen. And, um, you know, that's totally vital for understanding, like, the dynamics of this virus. And really informative if any sort of disease does happen, which we're not expecting necessarily from this Flavia virus, But... Given that it has happened before in 2016, who knows what's in the future? That's the thing. Yeah, so
0: I, I suppose it's helpful to have baseline, you, you know, pre, pre-disease stuff for comparison purposes, and mm-hmm. and I guess with this flavivirus in particular, because you mentioned it's a unique a unique one. There's a nice opportunity here. Uh, it seems to be. From the sounds of it, challenging to isolate individual. You know, you get groups that are more or less related, but mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. to have one that's sort of unique and, and the opportunity to kind of look at some okay. of the ecology of it, I guess. That's, uh,
1: that's what we're attracted to. It's it's very obvious, and it's not against the backdrop of other things that are closely related to it, which makes it a, more challenging to disentangle. Yeah. But um, no, like like I said, we would please reach out. We're we're really really happy to work with um, anybody. Well, yeah, thank you. Any Anything else you want to mention
0: here before we wrap up?
1: No, just to say uh, thanks to everybody, um, you know, uh, who keeps an eye out for, for, sea, for sea stars, also for sea cucumbers. Um, really appreciate, you know, the citizen science efforts that go into monitoring these populations are enormously valuable. Like, we wouldn't be in the position that we're in with understanding sea star wasting without divers and people in general on the seashores, collecting data, reporting it. So, um, thank you <laughs> so much. It really, uh, it's super important.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, thank, thanks for joining me here. I appreciate hearing some of the stories of, of the detective work, I guess. That's probably the best way to put it, uh, involved in some of this. My pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded with Ian Houston of Cornell University. I want to thank him for taking some time out of his trip and work here this past week to visit with me, and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW, Sitka.